Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to my the first episode, The Origins of Judaism, Part 1. I am Jacaris Porter, and I am going to go in on the origins of Judaism, you know, Part 1. So, bear with me. This is my first time doing a podcast episode and publishing it. But I've done a little bit of research on this topic and I wanted to present what I have found in the hopes that someone will find interest in it. Alright? So, to begin, many of you have heard of Judaism or some of you may have not have heard of Judaism at all. Uh, but Judaism is one of the oldest religions and it influenced the birth of Christianity and Islam, so familiarity with Judaism is determined by your degree of exposure to other cultures. Now, growing up in the Bible Belt, like I did, Judaism, or more accurately the terms Jew or Jewish, were thrown around in conversation and never really explained. Um, I knew a Jewish person in high school. You may know a Jewish person or have known a Jewish person. Yet, if you weren't close like I wasn't with the person I met in high school, then your your relationship with Judaism as a whole is probably superficial, you know? Um, and it's because of this obscure nature, yet the aforementioned role of Judaism and Christianity Islam that I decided to start with the faith of Judaism. So, what exactly is Judaism? Well... Judaism encompasses a wide body of texts, practices, rituals, and clergy that fall under the Jewish umbrella. Historically, the Middle East has been slated as the birthplace of Judaism. The term Jew refers to an ethno-religious group. You know, both of those born Jewish and those converted to Judaism from other religions. So it encompasses a wide category. You know, it's ethno-religious. So a person can be of an ethnic Jew, born into the family, same name, same culture. Uh, and they believe that their line is tied to Abraham or Noah or the sons of Noah. Or they converted from another religion to Judaism, or they converted to Judaism from some uh, from non-belief. All right. So um, Jews today are referred to as Semitic, though Semitic refers to someone of the Caucasian race, but they are dissimilar in appearance to Indo-Europeans, Northwest Caucasians, and other neighboring communities. So, therefore, Jews, they're recognized as a Semitic people, though the term Semitic now largely refers to a language rather than a race. So, to recap, Jew is a loaded term. It can refer to both a person's race or faith and can even be a slur in certain cases in, certain cases in terms of, you know, anti-Semitic. You know, it all depends on the circumstance. Now... Before I begin, I will say that many of the claims of the Bible have not been corroborated or cannot be corroborated. But I can't tell you about Judaism without telling you what they believe. Therefore, I will reference the Hebrew Bible 
the New Testament, Old Testament, where it's needed and make a point to mention where the source is either biblical or scholarly. You know, biblically, Semitic refers to the sons of Noah who were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The Jews assert to have descended from Shem, the tradition being started by Abraham when a covenant was agreed upon between Abraham and God. All right? So this is where we can approach the question of Jewish veracity. We know that the Jewish community owes their lineage to Abraham and Noah. In terms of Abraham, it was a contractual agreement with God. While with Noah, it's more of a genetic claim. Though both Abraham and Noah create progeny that will create the early family tree of these biblical patri patriarchs. You know, that's how people from the Jewish faith trace their line back. They, they say they are part of one of these family trees of Noah, Abraham, Ham, Shem, Japheth, you know, what have you. In any case, the descendants of Abraham and Noah were the ancestors of the modern Jews. So, who were the children of Noah then? And if you want more information on this topic, I refer you to Dot Camera Action on YouTube. Um, they broke down the lineage, the sons of Noah, in an understandable way for me, so I thought maybe it can help you. Still, you should do your own research, yet it's a good place to start out. Say it right now, it's a bit Afrocentric, not necessarily um, hostile. It's very informative, but it has an Afrocentric bent, so if you discredit that, from your observation because of that and just know it has that bent to it now the sons of noah you have ham shem and japheth so let's focus on ham for a moment in the table of nations found in genesis 10 ham was the father of cush mitzrayim put and canaan we'll come back to canaan so keep canaan in mind and no canaan is not the son of cain cain is the son of adam and eve cain Canaan is the son of Ham. Ham is the son of Noah. All right. Now, I digress. But um, Ham was purported to be the father of all the nations of Africans. This meant that Ham was the ancestor to the Negroid people. Why is this important? Why does it matter that Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth? Because by checking the claims made by Jewish authorities... Namely, that the Jewish people are descended from the Semitic line of Shem and correlating with known historical records, we can gain a clear picture on the origins of Judaism. So by studying the nations said to belong to Noah's children, you know, Ham, Africa, Shem, you know, West Asia, Mesopotamia, um, Jaffa, you know, Eastern Europe, Russia, we can figure out the cultural climate that these events were said to have occurred in. Now, back to Ham. Ham was the father of the African people, with the Bible naming Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Extra-biblically, these sons were heirs of land that corresponded to Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Chad, Ethiopia, present-day Somalia, Eritrea, and Djibouti. Finally, there was Canaan, which is located on the African tectonic plate, and adjoins West Asia. All right, it's east of the Mediterranean. It contains the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. All right, so back to the Bible. According to Jewish dogma, Moses is believed to have lived between 1500 to 1300 BCE. 
during that time, the first five books of the Bible were believed to have been written. I'll say that again. Moses is believed to have lived between 1500 and 1300 BCE. During that time, the first five books of the Bible were believed to have been written. You know, the first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah. Okay? Now, Moses is believed to have lived between 1500 and 1300 BCE. And during that time, the first five books of the Bible were believed to have been written. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah. Now, between the time of 1500 to 1300 BCE, Israel makes an appearance in extra-biblical sources. They appear on the steel of Pharaoh Meren, Meren Ptah. Excuse me, I'm going to make sure I'm pronouncing that. Merne Ptah. Merne Ptah. Um, and Bern, Pharaoh Merne Ptah is from the 13th century BCE. So that's like the 1200s BCE. Um, he ruled, uh, between, I was 12, the, the tablet was, was, his reign was between 1213 to 1203 BCE, you know, give or take 1213 to 1203, so it's about 10 years. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's about 80, uh, 73 years after supposedly Moses would have died in the 1300s, you know, in between that proposed time period. Um, so yeah, they make an experience, they make an appearance on this steel and it's known as an Israel steel um, for a certain line on the tablet. And the tablet said, Israel is laid waste. Its seed is not. So, the fact that they were even active at that point in the 13th century, you know, that means they had to have some type of building up process beforehand. So they had to have come from somewhere. They didn't, didn't prop up as the state of Israel, you know, in spite of what the Bible portrays. Well, even the Bible portrays them having to have come from a line of um, nomadic people. So that means they had to build states and they had to conquer territory. So the fact that they were a state by this point mean they had to exist to have existed before then. Um, but that's the earliest known one we got. We got alternative viewpoints on what it says, but that's the one that's most widely accepted. Now, Michael Brenner from A Short History of the Jews writes that this inscription testifies to the existence of a group of people in Canaan designated by that name, meaning Israel or Israelites. The patriarchal narratives may point to origins in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent, but this could also be the product of wishful thinking on the part of a group anxious to claim origins in the renowned city of Ur. Michael Brenner is basically saying that the stories of the Bible are wishful thinking on the part of the group of the Jews. They just want, he's saying that they, uh, they kind of want to claim ownership of some place. So they chose her because it's connection to, uh, you know, history and, uh, Babylonian history and his places are, uh, a civilized state. So they had, he's saying that the Jews just chose that area to have their patriarch originate from. Um, and in the Bible, you find that Ur is the place where Abraham does migrate from at the behest of God. So when concerning Abraham, even the larger Jewish community in ancient times, 
it's made clear that their origins are kind of mysterious. You know, you got scholars that say it's likely that these people made the story up to, you know, validate their own claims. And then you have the Jews themselves who are saying, no, this is 100% fat. This is where we came from because our book says so. So the only difference is that one person can prove their claim and the other one can't. Or they can prove the other person that can prove their claim by way of like, you know, some fallacies or not. It's not certain of what they can prove their claim claim or not. But I digress. Regardless, the history of the Jews is intricately mixed with myths, legend, legends, and actual fact. Still, there exists an avenue of determining certain things about the Judaic origin. Ancient history shows a people intimately linked with the going-ons at the time. They melted in at certain points and were a distinct presence at others. One area of distinction was in the area known as Mesopotamia. Um, obviously, Ur is in Mesopotamia. It's in the Fertile Crescent. Abraham received a call from God to go to Canaan, even though he didn't know it was Canaan at the time. And he traveled from Ur to the coast of the Mediterranean. You know, rather than focus on the destination or even the commandment given by God to Abraham, I got to focus on the trait that Abraham um, showed in his initial, you know, trek across the Middle East. And that is one that the Hebrews themselves would share. That trait is being nomadic or even semi-nomadic, you know. Abraham and his descendants migrated all throughout the Near East, you know, into Egypt. They went to uh, Palestine. They went through Babylon. They had dealings with Uruk. They had dealings with the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines. You know, they had a lot of conflict with other neighboring communities along the way. And you can look at the Bible to see that. The point I'm making is that the migratory patterns of the Hebrews is a documented attribute of the group of Hebrews. That's, it's known that they moved around places. It's known that they could get up and go at one spot. It's known that they were like hunter-gatherers and warriors, you know, to survive during that time, especially in terms of the Bible. But what I'm saying is this unstable movement was the present. This unstable movement came with it the presence of warfare, you know. Abraham existed during a time of territorial disputes, disputes, excuse me, tributary payments and vassal states. You can see that in the the the, the uh, Israel steel by Mernet Patah because he talks about Israel being crushed and destroyed. So obviously there were wars and Egypt, you know, controlled Canaan during a certain portion of history. So obviously there were vassal states and. They had to make payments to the crown, so obviously they made payments. So Abraham had to exist during that time because the tablet, the steel came up around, you know, 12, 14, 12, 13, 12, 14, 12, 13, to 1203, 1204. And they had to exist before then, so likely things were kind of the same from one year to the next. Um, so this likely meant that borders were constantly changing and like, one group interceding on foreign territory could cause a conflict if someone decided that was their territory and they were willing to fight for it because you can see that in the Old Testament. Joshua was ready to fight for what he considered the promised land. The Hebrews considered Israel their promised land. They considered God had given that to them. And so it's likely Abraham didn't lead like an entirely peaceful coalition of people if he was like, you know, to have been real. Um... So with that being said, the early Hebrews could be said to be nomadic or semi-nomadic, 
you know, some people settled in certain places. Some people stayed behind while the group moved forward. Some people just died. Some people separated and went their own ways. You know, that's just the way of the life. They were also known to be combative. You know, they would fight to defend themselves, obviously. They would fight for territory, obviously, because they took over the promised land. Um, so armed conflict was a thing of that time, um, especially if you got other like kingdoms like Egypt taking over places or just, you know, Babylon, then, you know, you had to have that combat element in your life. Um, they were also religious. You know, they started with monolateralism, which is the belief in one God. In the case of the Jews, the belief in Yahweh as a singular, as a singular God, but the knowledge, acknowledgement of other gods. You know, they recognize like other Egyptian gods, but they just focused on praising Yahweh. So, not so nomadicism, semi-nomadicism, combativeness, and religiosity are like traits that will allow Hebrews to simultaneously blend into other areas while maintaining a unique identity. You know, they would like people, but they weren't completely like people. They they would move around with people, but they ain't like them. So they would have some distinction. So it's likely that this drew people to the Hebrews in terms of like conflict and people wanting to join them. And this is where I guess the universal appeal of the Judaic doctrine takes hold, you know, because it has a diverse background of multi-ethnic, multicultural viewpoints. So these individuals likely led to a loose designation being applied to the group of people or just group of, of people in general. You know, you know, religion is more like a political thing at certain times in history. And for someone to say they're an Egyptian, they wouldn't necessarily be speaking of like their race, they'd be speaking of where they hail from or the thing they believe in. So um, in a sense, the Hebrews could have been anyone because they left their home and they occupied other people's land on the way to their new home. So they, they went through a lot into intermingling with other people. They could have taken on ideas they could have taken on concepts, you know, certain ways of being, their culture, likely mixed. So this personality of Hebrews and even their predecessors had to be mixed and diverse. Um, the reason I bring this up is because there are several groups who share traits with the Hebrews. And they are the Hebiru, Apiru, and the Hicksus. The Hebiru and Hapiru are one group. I said those words together. Now... In an attempt to understand the origins of the Hebrew, we have to do some digging into contemporaneous social groups. I think it's best to start with the Habiru, also known as the Apiru, which was a designation used in the second millennium BCE. So remember that. It's best to start with the Habiru, also known as the Apiru, which was a designation used in the second millennium BCE to describe a roaming collective of individuals. Roaming collective of individuals. All right. Now, before I begin, I have to say that the Habiru, the Apiru are not the same words as Hebrew, etymologically speaking. All right. The former pronunciation is a result of translation to English by scholars. I'll say that again. The former pronunciation, Habiru, Apiru, is a result of translation to English by scholars. All right. Habiru, Apiru is a result of translation to English by scholars. In reality, the term Habiru probably had a different sound than how it is today. 
This goes the same for Hebrew as well. In fact, these sonic differences have caused scholars such as Anson Rainey to dismiss the relationship between the words Habiru, Apiru, and Hebrew. For those in opposition, the two bear only a casual relationship instead of a causal one, you know? They don't share like genetic ties in terms of language speaking. So because of that, the fact that we saying Habiru and the Apiru were in Hebrew is considered naive by certain people in certain circles. And Anson Rainey felt that Habiru, Habiru was a social term rather than a genetic one, like race. So um, what he's saying is Habiru, Habiru is essentially a catch-all term similar to the term Canaanite. The Canaanites were a loose definition of states, city-states, and they didn't have one person or a model of what a Canaanite was. It's not like how Hitler tried to establish the alien, the Aryan race as a certain kind. They didn't have that really back then. Um, so it referred to, Habiru, Habiru referred to people in a variety of stations in the ancient world. You know, in Egyptian, Akkadian, and Sumeric records, the Habiru were known to be mercenaries, bandits, servants, and laborers. In other cases, they were peaceful and they broke deals with their neighbors. You know, Thutmose III dealt with the Habiru or the Apiru during his Egyptian monarchy of the 18th dynasty, you know. Um, and the Habiru were mentioned in the Amarna letters by the mayor of Jerusalem, Erheba, along with other rulers of other rulers noting that the Habiru were, um, you know, causing trouble. So, um, let's, let's, Let's keep it moving moving on. Um, I would say this. It's likely that the Hebrews, even if not directly related to the Hebiru, were brought into other nations by way of force, trade, or, you know, migration. You know, so like I said, it's, it's a lot of intermingling going on here. It's a lot of elements moving around that had to get mixed together, just like any jigsaw puzzle. So... And come on, you know, they definitely had an influence on the character that would shape the Hebrews. And even if they not directly are those guys, that character would find its way into the Bible. Um, so, I say all this to say that the Hebrew, while not necessarily having a lingual or racial genetic connection to the Hebrew, still share actual traits with the biblical he Hebrews. Like the Hebrews, the Hebrew were nomadic or semi-nomadic. And in possession of military prowess. This necessitated some form of hierarchy in order to have efficiency and not to, to succumb to infighting or external threats. So the Hibiru were noted throughout the ancient world for the skirmishes that involved them as at least implied by the Merne Patah tablet steel and more solidly with the Amarna letters. The Hibiru Hibiru were not merciless but they were considered troublesome to establish city-states like those on the Canaanite coastline or Egypt. This is not always to say the Hebrew were that way because they were noted as workers in the time of Hattisput and Thutmose the third. You know, they were seen on on uh monuments as, you know, pressing wine. And you know, this kind of goes with the whole idea that the Hebrews were slaves because the Hebrew was seen as servants in certain cases. So Habiru wasn't necessarily like a race. It described a certain station. You know, you could be a Habiru 
if you were considered an outsider or different. You could be Habiru if you were considered rebellious. You know, that those terms more accurately describe the Habiru than um, something like race. It's more like this person moves around a lot. They pillage. They may serve as a bondsman. That's a Habiru. You know, they outside of our culture. That's a Habiru. Not necessarily a race thing. Just so it's very just how Jew is varied today. So it's a lot of connotations with Habiru. Um still, rulers like Akhenaten likely recalled the Habiru annoyance, as it was with Erheba that Akhenaten had a correspondence with through the Amarna letters. Because Erheba constantly wrote about the conquering Hebrew. Hebrews. He said that they were encroaching on his territory. He pleaded for troops, archers specifically, to fight back the Hebrew, um, because he felt that the land was going to belong to them, and he didn't want to be treated like a Hebrew, which, like, like I said, an outsider. So it shows that multi-meaning of the word Hebrew. So they were known as a nuisance from the time they were active, and they were active from like the 18th to the 12th century. So that's about 600 years of activity. And that 18th to 12th century time span is longer than the 200 years between the 1500s and 1300s when Moses is said to have lived. So this type of energy persisted within these people for a while in the history. So it was transplanted in the mimetic like, construct of these people. So it had to have found some way to get transferred into the Hebraic religion. Um, but there was another group that did something similar, and this group is called the Hyksos. The Hyksos were responsible for the 15th dynasty of ancient Egypt. The Hyksos were responsible for the 15th dynasty of ancient Egypt. And that spanned about 100 years. They were a mixed group of travelers with their own way of doing things, and they entered Egypt from the east. They entered Egypt from the east. Um... Uh, like I said, the dynasty was 100 years. It spanned from 1650 BCE to about 1550 BCE. And during their migration, they passed along the Mediterranean coast through the Syria and Canaanite lands. Just like the Apiru before them, the Hyksos were a semi-nomadic to nomadic group of foreign kings. Because Hyksos was another Egyptian term to describe those who ruled foreign lands. So like the Apiru before them, it didn't designate a race. It designated a station. Someone that was an outsider to the Egyptians or the person referring to the Hyksos. You know, W.M. Petrie reminds us of the rules of Saladis and other pre-Hyksos rulers with Kenenzi and Candy, who I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but Petrie brings us to the Semitic people that galloped down the Mediterranean and Syrian coast. You know, um, he tells us about two Babylonian kings, Kenenzi and Candy. Um... They they supposedly could have existed um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. So somewhere around the 1500s to the 1600s, these Babylonian kings could have existed in um, Egypt. You know, and that shows a Babylonian entrance into Egypt. And the Hyksos made up their land in Canaan. And Canaan definitely drew influences from Babylon because who went from Babylon who went from near Babylon to Canaanite Abraham so that shows how that 
belief system could have trekked across and they shared beliefs and they was too close together anyway to not interact because that's what humans do. So they likely interacted and this shows Babylonian uh, influence in Egypt. Egyptian influence was in um, the Hebraic tradition. So that means they had to interact. They, they, they drew from others even if they did it unknowingly. But the 15th dynasty of the Hyksos into Egypt was a succession. It wasn't like the first um, because Babylon had gotten into Egypt, you know, kind of before with Canaanites, they came into, um, Egypt because Egypt owned Canaan. So they, the Canaanites lived there before the Hyksos did. And the Canaanites already had Babylonian influences, you know, with Moloch and, um, other of their, their other gods that they refer to as El. So... That's for the second part too, though. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, you know, Canaanian candy, Babylonian kings, are possibly could have been in Egypt, according to Petrie, W.M. Petrie. But I haven't been able to corroborate that. I use a much earlier insertion of Babylon into the Abrahamic system. This this happens by way of the poetry, actually. And the poem I'm speaking of is Gilgamesh. You know, Gilgamesh is a legendary account of the historical king um, of Ur, right? Or Uruk. Kind of fuzzy on which one it was, but it's, it's Uruk. It's Uruk. Um, and Ur, I guess, is depending on which poem you read, you know? But... So according to Stephen Mitchell, Gilgamesh lived around 2700, 2750 BCE, which was prior to the time that Moses had to live and it just shows more of a connection with you know a marauding group of people that sell up places and you know settle kingdoms and stuff um the earliest manuscripts of Gilgamesh come from 2100 BCE all right um so it predates that 1500 1300 200 year time span that Moses could have lived um and it even predates the Hyksos into Egypt. Um, but it doesn't predate the Canaanite uh, intermingling with Egypt. You know, because the Canaanites were probably active from the Bronze Age from like 3300 BCE to 1200 BCE. So this is during the time of the Bronze Age that he supposedly had lived. Um... So the poem's longevity is likely the result of adoration that the kings of Ur, especially from the Sumerian Third Dynasty, had for actual Gilgamesh. Like, they loved him. There were several poems about Gilgamesh besides the epic of Gilgamesh, you know? They revered this guy. He was deified, as a matter of fact, after he died, you know? Having, that's a similar kind of thing that the New Testament does with Jesus, so it showed that this practice existed you know, pre the Bible, and a lot of people carried out the same ways of deifying and commemorating people they felt uh, were important to their history. You know, you see that with Gilgamesh itself. Um, it's because their praise ensured that the tales of the Sumerian ruler would continue via their literature, which was oral and written. You know, not everybody could write, not everybody could read. That was considered a privilege back then. So, people that talked, they spread stories that way, and that's likely 
how the intermingling came because someone could Babylon could tell something to Ur and someone can Ur can go to Uruk and they just talk about something and then they take pieces of that story and add it together and now you got this whole legend about this person. And in any case, the story was originally written in Sumerian and it found its way into Akkadian during the late second millennium. And who was active during the second millennium? The Apiru. They were active during that time, you know? They traveled a lot. So it's likely they picked up on the story of Gilgamesh um, and then helped spread it throughout the Near East. And that influence likely found its way in the Bible in some way, as I will prove, because the stories of Gilgamesh and the Bible have something in common. They all share a strong patriarchal motif. They all have strong kings, like warriors like Joshua, they have King Solomon, they got battles, you know, they got judgment. All those things make a, 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 an appearance in the Bible and Gilgamesh. You know, Gilgamesh is a demigod and he's a strong and powerful king, you know. But like the kings from the Bible, like Solomon with his lust, um, you have a fatal flaw in Gilgamesh, which is his egotism, you know. It gets so bad that the people go to praise, go to pray to their gods and ask for relief from Gilgamesh's reign. They consider him a tyrant. And in response, the gods create a wild man named Enkindu. All right. And um, Enkindu is unique because he shares some attributes with, you know, Adam of the Bible. And I'll go into that because this, when they describe Enkindu in the poem, they say, he roamed all over the wilderness, naked, far from the cities of men, while he ate grass with gazelles, and when he was thirsty, he drank clear water from the water holes beside the antelope and deer. So this description of him in a forested area, living beside the animals, you got to think of Adam in the Garden of Eden. You know, you got to. Uh, and Kendu is seen as like free, just as Adam is seen as free. You know, he's naked. He's running wild. He's in tune with nature. The same thing. With Adam, the animals don't react negatively to his presence at all. You know, he can just go up and touch them. So just as Adam was when God first placed him in Eden. But like Adam, Enkindu's bliss doesn't last long, all right? So let's talk about this. In Gilgamesh, right? Enkindu's experience is disturbed by the introduction of an unknown element. A woman. And I'm not trying to be facetious when I say that. I'm just saying it is in both cases of Enkindu and Adam. Um, their particular specific downfall comes about when they give in to the temptations by their women. And for Enkindu, he's seduced by a priestess of Ishtar, who's like a sacred whore prostitute. And I don't mean that as an insult, but that's like an actual term, sacred whore prostitute. Because the priestesses of Ishtar were known to give themselves to any man that came to them. You know, in the story of Gilgamesh. And Ishtar herself is the goddess of Venus, which is love, but also Lucifer and the Morning Star, and even the Messiah. But we'll get to that later. But anyway, he's seduced by this priestess named Shamhat. And they cooperate in the forest, and he loses his supernatural vigor and gains higher thought. I won't talk about the esoteric and occult symbology of that and why that happens. That's beyond this podcast for another one. Maybe I'll do a part three or a side note anyway. But more specifically, there is a parallel between 
and Kendu's lapse into lust and Adam's naive faith in Eve's judgment. They both reflect a central theme of deception and illusion within these two stories. You know, there's a masculine feminine dynamic that travels through the story of Genesis and the epic poem of Gilgamesh. And it illuminates a correlation between the two cultures. You know, Hebrew and Sumerian mix a lot like how the Hebiru and the Hyksos intermingle with the Near Eastern world. You know, so the commonalities in culture are evidence of influences being shared across different channels as a form of human interaction. Specifically what I'm talking about in Kindu, he is, he is seduced by a trapper who sees him in the forest running with the animals and setting the animals free. So the trapper decides to consult Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh tells him to go to the priestesses of Ishtar who will give him a priestess to give to the man in the forest, the wild man in the forest. And they have sex and they have sex for like seven days, <laughs> seven days. And then he, after that, and Kendu can't run with the animals anymore, but he has a higher mind. He's lost his physical abilities. And now he has more um, spiritual understanding of things. In Adam's case, we all know that story. He was just given the apple after Eve was like, here, eat this. And he was like, all right. And he ate it. And then he became like her. So, but now if you're looking for a more concrete connection between these cultures, I just look at geography. I said we're going to be studying geography. So we're going to be doing that. And that'll help you alleviate any words of me going into metaphysical, like, rhetoric. I can go into it and I plan on going to it at certain points. But I just wanted to cover the, the hist historical aspect of it because I feel like that gives something for people to latch on to. So now let, let's look at Abraham, right? The patriarch of Judaism was ordered to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, that's why some people say Abraham was a Chaldean, you know, of the Chaldean numerology system. Um, so yeah, the patriarch of Judaism was ordered to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Ur, and journey to Canaan. Okay, today Ur is found in the Dikar government of Iraq. All right, the Dikar government of Iraq. Babylon is only 286 or 165 miles from Dikar. It's only 165 miles from Uruk, essentially. I mean Ur, where Abraham came from. That's all. So that's how they, the biblical influence is known, and why they always talk about Babylon. You know, because there's always Babylon was actually a physical place that was trying to intercede on Ur. You know, like, in terms of proximity. So the influences definitely cross channels. And they likely had disputes because of the, the space they shared. But yeah, Ur is in Dikar. And that's 165 miles from Babylon. Um, Uruk, which is the Mesopotamian city that Gilgamesh and Enkindu come from, is east of the Mediterranean and 118 miles from Babylon. You know, go figure. Only, only 118 miles from Babylon is Uruk. So needless to say, their proximity to one another would have led to a high level of contact. And it's only natural to assume that Babylonian influences bled into what would become the Hebrew populace. Okay? So biblical writers were certainly aware of the various deities that existed throughout the Near East. And you can see this in the Bible with the mention of the Canaanite Moloch. But... Most strongly with the Mosaic commandment of the Ten Commandments of thou shalt have no false idols before me. Very explicit. Um, especially after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and notices they worship in a bull. But that has more astrological uh, 
relevance than just him coming down and seeing them worshiping a golden bull physically. That's it's a different thing. I'm not going into that now, but I will reference it for other points. But that's an example of you know the false idols that Yahweh you know forbade in the Ten Commandments. You know, but clearly the writers knew rival gods existed. You know, and it's likely that the Ten Commandments came about to steer praise from steer praise of the Near Eastern inhabitants to Yahweh and not to these other gods. All right. So now that we're talking about the Ten Commandments, I'll, I'll say I'll mention how the ten the tenets of the Bible have a lot of commonalities with other ancient directives that predate the the Hebrew Bible. All right. Now it was known that Egypt had its own system, you know, and it also known that that system contained directions on how to live a wholesome life. Specifically, those directions were known as the forty-two negative confessions. All right. The 42 negative confessions were just that. 42 precepts that were meant to ensure a person kept their soul light for the time of judgment. Literally. When I say literally, I mean literally their heart had to be light. Uh, lighter than the feather or it would be eaten. Eaten. So now the analog between this heart weighing ceremony and the day of judgment in the Bible is not superficial at all. You know, just how Yahweh decreed any verdict on the defendant ma'at ma tahudi shashat asar and the 42 judges of asar how they presided over the determination of the soul's final destination is just how yahweh does the same of the soul after they die now there was even like a punishment for those whose heart was heavier than a feather in the in the weighing of the heart ceremony you know it wasn't like the fiery hell of Gehenna in Judaism, but the consumption of someone's heart by a, a crocodile-headed monster named Amit, it was a good psychological deterrent to anybody that wanted to sin in that Egyptian culture. You know, ironically, along with this idea of punishment and con condemnation is also the idea of forgiveness. You know, and that was prevalent through the Egyptian religion just as it is in Judaism. So during the weighing of the heart ceremony, the deceased was expected to recite the 42 negative confessions and plead free of any wrongdoing. If they felt, then their heart was feasted on by the monster Emet. But if not, then they were shepherded off to the Aru fields. There they would rest in peace with their own estate along with the Aku, i.e. the ancestors. And I know some of y'all might have noticed that Aku is the same as the being in Samurai Jack, whose name is Aku, and we won't get into that esoteric lineage there, even though I got some words on that, but it is ironic that Aku was the bad guy in that. Yet in Egyptian culture, Aku is considered your ancestors and the place where you belong after you pass away. But, you know, that's... That's just the switching that kind of the Hebrew Israelites talk about. So, but let's move on. Um, so this reality of salvation is easily discernible with the presence of Jesus in the New Testament. And simple repentance in the Old Testament. Though in the Old Testament, it was different. You, sometimes you repented by dying. So it was meant, to, it was meant, Jordan Peterson talks about this. It was meant to show that if you broke the rules, there was hell to pay. Literally, hell to pay. You know, in in the book of Joshua, God tells Joshua that the reason they're encountering difficulties right now is that they broke the covenant. 
and that someone in their party has stole something from Jericho. So Joshua has to literally go out and find that person, and he he finds that they stole some things from Jericho, and so he has them put to death. It's real. Now, in any case, the cities of significance to the Judaic faith, you know, you know, Egypt, Canaan, Babylon, Ur, Ur, they're too near to one another to not have mimicked each other. Yeah, in some way, you know. Once you add in the fact that the strongest candidates for predecessors of the Hebrews, the Hibiru and the Hyksos, traveled extensively throughout the Near East, you start to see the consequence of a nomadic or even a semi-nomadic lifestyle. And what I'm speaking of when I say this consequence, I'm speaking of a composite religion that drew from several surrounding sources to create the monotheistic version we know today as Judaism. All right? So the, dip, the deeper relationships between Egyptian texts and the Bible I'm not going to cover that in this single presenta presentation. You know, it goes beyond the weigh-in of the heart ceremony. It goes to the per in haru or the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And, the, the, you know, the coffin text and the pyramid text. But I'm not going to draw up those similarities now because this is about the origins of Judaism. Um, and even though that pertains to the origins of Judaism, that's just too much to cover right now. Instead, I'm going to go to the Babylonian effect, all right? <laughs> Now, when we return to Gilgamesh, we return to Akindu, right? The brother in arms of Gilgamesh is Enkindu, all right? So, Enkindu bears a likeness to Adam. As I've already said, they both grew up in a forested area. They were one with nature. They could eat anything they wanted to. They had no want of food. They never got hungry. They were never hunted. They were safe. They were peaceful. They both shared this early, like, story. But when you take into account in Kindu's forest at home, rife at wildlife and natural sustenance, Eden has to come to your mind. And when you think of his in Kindu's copulation with the Astarian priestess, you're reminded of Eve's persuasion of Adam to eat from the forbidden tree. You know, because in Kindu made it with that woman, Eve, Adam and Eve made it, but that wasn't the sin. They sin was like eating from the, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And that has its own esoteric meanings, but I'm not going into that right now. I'll go into that later. Um, but right now, we're just covering the physical, historical movement of these people. So, um, even though Enkindu has a lot of reference to Adam, um, Gilgamesh has a lot in common with Samson, you know, and even other heroes throughout the, the, um, the ancient world because Gilgamesh is noted... To undergo a great adventure in the name, a great adventure in the name of glory, honor, and even that pure masculinity. Hercules had the twelve labors, while Gilgamesh's exploits survived through the surviving poems. Hercules survived in the legends and myths. You know, um, Gilgamesh even shared Hercules's sense of entitlement and tendency to abuse his gifts. Like in Gilgamesh, it says Gilgamesh takes the son from his father and crushes him, takes the girl from her mother and uses him, uses her etc etc while in the odyssey the son of zeus and juno hercules he kills a man simply because the demigod hercules needs the guy's horse so he just kills him so so he can take the horses so there's a tendency for heroes throughout myths of all times especially those of, of a demigod variant to assault and batter those weaker than them it's the attribute of all gods even yahweh has that because he demonstrated that in the Old Testament and how he commanded the Israelites to take back what's there, you know, 
he expressed himself through other people though versus the, the demigods expressing themselves as themselves or the gods expressing themselves as themselves so the Israelites essentially became the spoke person to Yahweh versus in the old myths like Gilgamesh or Hercules they were represented by the beings themselves okay um, the reason I even brought up Hercules and Gilgamesh and Kendu and Adam and, and Kendu and Adam is because I wanted you to see an expression through various other myths and find how they found a place in the minds of early like biblical writers. You know, these people share stories orally and for the people that were lucky enough to be able to read or write, they read them and then they were likely inspired. Like if you're an artist, you know how you can be inspired just listening, seeing, reading something and it just makes its way into your work. So it's the same thing with the biblical writers. No one, there's no reason to think they should be exempt. Um, but Gilgamesh has some similarities with a biblical character named Samson, all right? And we all know about Samson. He has long hair, asked three times by Delilah what was the strength, was the cause of his hair. She tries three times to cut off his hair and finally gets him the third time. Good job, Samson. But, you know, in Kindu, we see how women are, can be the downfall of a strong man. But let's continue on. Samson shares Gilgamesh's penchant for long, powerful-looking hair. You know, if you see... The depictions of Gilgamesh, he has like a long beard, long hair. Samson's known for his hair. But it's not purely aesthetic. Like I said, these stories have commonalities and origins, so no doubt that's why Samson and Gilgamesh and Hercules and Gilgamesh and Enkindu and Adam are all the same. Because Samson, like Gilgamesh, is noted for his abnormal strength, girth, and presence. So is Enkindu. He has all those attributes that Gilgamesh has. Strength, girth, presence. Just like Samson. It is likely that the writers of the Bible were cognitively stimulated by the history of Gilgamesh and Enkindu, which is why the Bible fancies stories of warrior men that risked their lives for their goals. With all this talk of warriors, journey, and legends, I feel it is necessary to draw our attention back to the Hyksos. Okay? Now we're going to talk about how the myths share commonality. We're going to go back to the Hyksos because even if the Hyksos or the Hebrew are not directly related to the Hebrews, like I said, they were Hebrews were probably brought into nations by way of force or trade or migration. So the Hyksos with their chariots and spears and bronze and even possibly the Shaduf, you know, which is still used in agriculture today, they're vestiges of a foreign power transplanted into Egypt. Now, when you imagine Joshua, you can envision a large group of diverse people and whom who possessed archers who were able to pave the way for the fortress of Avarice being built because the Hyksos built the fortress of Avarice once they invaded from the east into Egypt, you know? So, when you're talking about the Hyksos, Sabir, or the Hebrews, the group was willing to fight for what they deemed their birthright, you know? Um, and it was a temperament that closely resembles the Hebrew and later the Hebrew affinity for conflict that I mentioned the Hyksos. So, when you think about the Hyksos or the Hebrew or the Hebrew, when you think about God talking to Joshua to cross the Jordan River, then that narrative gives a vision of men on chariots, followed by like a mobile contingent of humans trekking east of the Mediterranean. To Mediterranean. Basically, they're rolling deep, and they ain't coming to talk, all right? So let's continue on with the Babylonian influence, because the Hyksos settled throughout all of the Near East, too, so they likely settled in Babylon and, you know, Canaan as well. So what I'm saying is 
this colonizing personality would carry the Hyksos into establishing the 15th dynasty in Egypt. Um, and the 15th dynasty, the first king is supposedly Salitus, but Salitus hasn't been identified using archaeological techniques. And if somebody want to look him up, his name is S-A-L-I-T-I-S. That's S-A-L-I-T-I-S. So they haven't verified he existed. But a notable Jewish historian who was a Jew himself, so he's a little bit biased, um, Titus Flavius Josephus, commented on Salatus in Against Appion. And Against Appion was a work that Josephus made in defense of the Judean lifestyle of Judaism. Now, so whoever Salatus was, he reigned for 19 years before the throne fell to a successor. So, like I said, the Hyksos dynasty lasted like 100 years from 1650 to 1550. And they were expelled from Lower Egypt by the 16th dynasty. So, there's uncertainty about just who were the 16th dynasty. There are people in two camps. Those that think the Hyksos were vassal states, like, you know, the Canaanites. And they were those who argued for an independent Thebian state. Like, the, the 16th dynasty came from Thebes or Waset. And they pushed the Hyksos back. In the, either case, we can see how the, there was a combination of belief structures and social political movements during that area that would have led to an intermeshing of different viewpoints and cultures. Okay? So, now we only got seven minutes in here. I got an hour max, so I guess I'll recap with everything. I'm basically saying that the Hibiru, the Hyksos, provided a template or oh, even Gilgamesh, the poem of Gilgamesh, they provided a cultural, linguistic, and historical basis and template for the Hebrew, Hebrew group that would arise sometime before the 13th century on the Maripatah text, you know, steel. So, there was a lot of influences coming in that would shape the Bible. You know, we got Egyptian influences with the 42 negative confessions. We got Babylonian influence from the Epic of Gilgamesh and just proximity of Babylon to Ur and Ur to Uruk and Uruk to Babylon. You know? So, we got the, the, the image of the Hyksos and the Hibiru conquering and traveling that would have inspired biblical writers to make Joshua cross the Jordan River and regain the promised land, you know? So, there, there's a lot of evidence to support that the Bible um, used, drew from events at the time, historically, to paint a picture of, you know, a, a Semitic line. So, that's why I'm bringing it up in part one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. This Origins of Judaism Part 1. I didn't even get into the Canaanite gods and the Babylonian gods and the Egyptian gods and the, the, the framework of those religions and how those affected Judaism. I'll get that in Part 2. But for now, I just want to show y'all the, uh, the geography of um, my argument. And I wanted to give you a little glimpse at the theology of my argument. And I just wanted to give you some basic facts so you have an idea of what I was talking about, why I'm saying what I'm saying, and what to expect in the next podcast. Because the next podcast, I'm going to be talking about Canaan specifically. 
I'm going to be talking about Canaan specifically and how that influenced um, Judaism and how other regions like Egypt influenced Judaism. So it might be a part three. So stay tuned for that. But for as of now, appreciate you guys coming to my podcast. First episode. Looking forward to doing great things. I'm Jacaris Porter signing out.